He is such an independent kid. I mean, he's 19, and if he could be living alone, he would be. Genetics isn't always black and white, and the emotions and decisions surrounding genetic testing can be even more complex. Welcome to Patient Stories with Gray Genetics. I'm Eleanor Griffith, a certified genetic counselor and the founder of Gray Genetics, a telehealth genetic counseling and consulting service. It seems like there are constantly headlines in the news about genetics, but few news stories focus on the patient experience. At Gray Genetics, we are collecting patient stories, your stories. Every other Tuesday, we share an interview with a patient or a genetic counselor. Today, I'm interviewing Jennifer McNary. Jen is an advocate, public speaker, and consultant in the rare disease space. She is also the mother of four children, the oldest of two have Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Hi, Jen, thank you for coming on the podcast and talking to me about your experience with Duchenne muscular dystrophy and your family. Hi, thanks for having me. So to start with, to orient people, what is Duchenne muscular dystrophy? So Duchenne uh, is a rare disease. It's a neuromuscular category, and it um, is usually diagnosed between two and five years old. Um, So these boys are born, it affects primarily boys. So these boys are born looking uh, very normal and healthy. And then um, by the time they're diagnosed, it's because they have uh, some sort of muscle weakness. They have enlarged calves. um, They fall a lot. They just aren't meeting their milestones um, neuromuscularly. And so the disease persists and it, so it starts in the lower limbs, um, taking their ability to walk and it progresses into the upper body, taking their upper limb strength. Um, it, uh, it affects their core muscles. So they end up having spinal surgery. Um, and it also is, um, it indicates a shorter lifespan. So these guys have a lifespan that generally ends in their, uh, late teens, early twenties, um, because the heart and the, um, breathing muscles, the diaphragm, are pretty severely affected too. And so generally they die uh, early of either cardiac or respiratory failure. You were saying that it primarily affects boys and that's because it's caused by a mutation on the X chromosome. So women are typically unaffected by, by carriers and then can have sons who have the condition. Is that right? Yeah, so there's there's a few different ways to, to pass along Duchenne and there certainly are manifesting carriers that is a carrier with a deactivated X. So there are women with Duchenne, with full-blown Duchenne, and then a myriad of other symptoms ranging from, you know, full Duchenne to normal. I actually am not a carrier, though. So I'm what's called a mosaic, um, which means that some of my eggs are affected by the disease, but not all of my eggs. And there isn't really a way to test my eggs to find out what percentage. So I kind of won the lottery twice. Back when the boys were diagnosed, um, mosaic was not well known. And so the doctor was shocked with my second diagnosis after I was uh, not diagnosed as a carrier. Your oldest son, Austin, is 19 now. How old was he when he was diagnosed and what led to that diagnosis? What were you noticing that, that made you realize that there was something wrong? So I was actually in uh, community college. I was very young when Austin was born and uh, I was 18 and he um, he wasn't meeting his developmental milestones really from the very beginning. He was kind of a floppy baby. And um, so I was taking this information about typical child development in school and I was bringing it home and realizing that my kid wasn't meeting milestones. Um, unfortunately, in a small town in Vermont, the pediatrician at the well child visits kept telling me that he was fine. He was just lazy. He just had a big head. Um, he was going to be fine. You know, it's probably my fault. I was carrying him everywhere. 
Um, by the time he was two and a half, the doctor agreed with me that he didn't look quote unquote right. And she ordered a physical therapist evaluation. At the time, we were talking about whether or not he'd qualify for services. You know, we thought we could just get him back on track. The physical therapist, Diane was actually her name, um, came to visit and she, um, she immediately talked about Duchenne and said she wanted him to get a blood test to, to uh, see if he had Duchenne. At the time, it was because of the way he got up off the floor. So she would have him sit down and then stand up. And he used what's called a Gower's maneuver, which is basically using your hands to climb up your legs to support you standing up. Um, and so she did. She reported to the, to the pediatrician. I was um, about eight months pregnant with Max at the time. And by the time we got the blood test and the blood work back, Max was about four weeks old. So Austin was three years old and Max was four weeks old. And then did they, after testing him, did they do follow-up testing for you? And I'm guessing they told you you're not a carrier, you don't have to worry about Max. Yeah, so the first thing they did was a CK test, creatine kinase. And so that is to test basically muscle breakdown. Uh, the numbers were off the charts with Austin. And so he was sort of given an interim diagnosis of Duchenne because that's all that sort of makes sense at that point. But then he was given a genetic test. When the genetic test came back with a deletion of exon 52, that's when they could test me for the same deletion. And mine came back negative. Um, when, mine, when mine came back negative, the doctor, when I consulted with him, said, you don't need to worry about your younger son, luckily. And I said, well, you know, I'd feel better if we just got him tested just in case. And um, when I got the phone call from the doctor, he started with, I'm really sorry that I didn't know this was possible. He had never heard of Duchenne Mosaics in the small hospital that he was working in. And so he had done some reading before calling me and found out that it was actually quite common. Um, so he had given me sort of that false sense of security. Um, and then uh, lo and behold, both boys had it. And then the testing for Max, did they also start with that CK testing? So with Max, they did start with a CK test at first, and it was higher than Austin's. So we knew before his, um, Max actually didn't have a genetic test until years later when I wanted to consider clinical trials. Okay. And what did the doctors tell you, or um, maybe the physical therapist, since it seems like the physical therapist was more knowledgeable about this disease, um, what did they tell you that that diagnosis meant for, for your sons at that point? You know, it's, it's very typical and almost cliche at this point, but we all heard the same thing. You know, my friends and I at that, at that age, um, or, you know, that generation of Duchenne boys, which was take your sons home and love them. Um, you know, there, there is no treatment. There's these steroids, but they're terrible for them. And it's best to just let them go through the natural course of the disease. And the natural course of the disease is dying in your early teens. Mm -hmm. Whereas now Max is 16 and Austin is 19, right? And both of them still, you know, they're, they're still alive and very much participating in life. Yeah. It's a very different prognosis now. What has it been like for you to raise two sons with DMD? You know, it's an interesting question to ask what it's like to raise them. I guess uh, you'd, you'd have to know, comparatively speaking, what it's not to like to raise them. So I guess I can use the experiment um, of having two younger, healthy kids. Mm -hmm. um, so there are a lot of similarities with raising sick and healthy kids. You have the day-to-day -day stuff that you do, and it's, it's pretty much the same. 
I think that having sick kids has made our family more compassionate, kinder, I think more grateful. We, we are thankful for every day that, that people are healthy. We also deal with death in a different way. We've lost a lot of friends' kids um, and, you know, people that my kids go to camp with. And we have deaths every week. So I think it's it really puts um, new light into, um, as one of my friends who recently lost her son used to hashtag all the time, make every day count. And I think... Mm-hmm. I think that's what it's like. It also, you know, having medically fragile kids really takes over your life. I can't work a regular job. Um, We have a lot of medical appointments. My youngest daughter's, one of her first words was vitals. She was learning to talk around the time that my boys were in a clinical trial. So, um, so you really build your life around it. We have a lot of caregivers. Um, There are people in my house all the time, nurses or caregivers, um, and so you learn to be very open with your life. Every aspect of your life is is under a microscope. And how old are your two younger children? So my, my son, who is healthy, is 10, James. And my daughter um, is seven. Uh, her name's Nora. And I've not yet bitten the bullet to find out if she's a carrier. Is that something that, um, I mean, I would think that there's not a good reason to do that before she's 18 and she kind of decides on her own? Are there... Are there medical reasons, you know, because um, carriers can manifest that it might be important to know that sooner? Yeah, so so definitely because of the manifesting carrier, I have quite a few friends who have daughters who are manifesting carriers of some sort. And so there are also carrier studies that if I knew she was a carrier, I might enroll her in a clinical study um, where they're trying to learn more about carriers. Um, and then I'm also not naive enough to think that childbearing years start at 18, given that Austin was born when I was 18. So I, I want—I would want to get her tested before she was, uh, before she uh, was able to even create a child. Yeah. So I think I'm going to do it soon. The, the problem is that it's, it's blood, and you know what, seven-year-old or six-year-old or five-year-old wants to donate blood. Right. So we've had an argument about it, but um, at some point soon, I will be doing it. Yeah. At seven, how much do you think she understands about why that test result might be important, but like what it would mean? Nothing. Nothing at all. She just doesn't want her blood drawn. (laughs) (laughs) She just does not want to sit down. She, she has a huge fear of needles. She's watched her brothers go through a lot of needle type procedures so anything medical really terrifies her. She's got a lot of trauma around that. So she's not interested in going through it herself. She's seen her brother scream. Yeah. And do uh, do Austin and Max go to school or do you have some homeschooling or how does that all work? So all four of my kids go to regular mainstream school. Um, Austin is currently about to start his sophomore year in community college. And Max is starting his sophomore year in high school. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah, we're we're very normal in that way. The kids have always I did homeschool Austin for his middle school years. Um but that was because we lived in Vermont and they had a tiny little middle school that was not handicap accessible. Mhm. So I kept him home. Um So but, as lo- as long as the schools are handicap accessible, they're able to participate without without really other difficulties. Yeah, so they've had various help in schools, but like Austin is attending college without uh, an aid right now, 
which has proven, you know, it's it's been difficult for him, but he's learned to ask people for help if he needs something out of his bag or needs a door opened. Um, he's pretty good at that. Max is less of an advocate for himself, uh, so he needs a little bit more assistance. But but both boys are really independent. And you mentioned you can't have a regular full-time job, um, you know, with taking care of both of them. Are you their primary caregiver or... Is it or is it really misleading to say primary caregiver because there's so many different people involved? <laughs> That's a really great question. So I am probably less involved as a caregiver and more involved as a manager. Um, I like to say, you know, that that I'm, you know, the I'm the one that schedules everything. I'm the one that oversees a whole staff, but that it requires. Um, less hands-on work for myself. I really wanted to just be their mom. Mm-hmm. Um, now that doesn't mean I don't bathe them sometimes or lift. You know, I put Austin in bed almost every night by myself, but I cover as many shifts as I can with care attendants that help the boys with their personal care needs. Yeah. Um, and are those care attendants, is that all covered by insurance? Well, um, there is a program through most states, including Massachusetts, where we live now, um, that covers a certain amount of personal care hours. Um, I would say, no, it's definitely not all covered. And the rates that they pay are incredibly low. And so every single one of my caregivers charges more than the state will pay. So I subsidize that. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also won't pay for certain services. Um And so I find myself, you know, paying for somebody to drive Austin somewhere in our van or, you know, things like that, um, that, that aren't covered. Okay. So you're involved with at least two nonprofit organizations related to DMD. And I know we were talking before the interview that you're working with at least one of them to launch a patient assistance program. Can you talk a little bit about how you got involved with those organizations and what kind of work you do with them? Sure. So um, I'm actually, I'll talk about the one that I'm on the board of first. It's a local nonprofit called the Bohawks Foundation, named after a little guy with Duchenne named Bo and his brother Tucker. Um, And so my job there is outreach and advocacy. So I make sure that we're um, working on awareness, and especially in the school system, um, to really let let everybody understand that uh, Duchenne is nothing to be afraid of, that our boys are normal, that our boys um, deserve friends and attention and all of that. Um, And so I I work on that side of the program. But this organization is actually funding some great research um, that that is amazing, too. But my job is is really outreach. And so I've been on that board for a couple of years. Um, And then the organization that I've been volunteering as a program manager, and then I just sort of shifted out of that position, but I'm enjoying watching this grow, is the Little Hercules Foundation, which is in Columbus, Ohio. It was a very small foundation that reached recently noticed that the next challenge in Duchenne, we had a drug on the market, but the next challenge was really insurance coverage. And so we worked together to put together um, a program that helps patients navigate the insurance process and has case managers that actually work one-on-one with any patient who has received a denial for a prescribed drug or piece of equipment. Um, And so that's been really, really amazing to watch these families get approvals on either medications that they're seeking 
or pieces of equipment, wheelchairs, things like that that they need. Um, and so this organization has really stepped up to provide that service free of charge. So I'm, I'm very proud of that program. Yeah. And when they're getting these denials, do you know, is it is it more related to like billing codes and misunderstandings or just kind of like a routine practice of denying without really looking into things? Or is it really where the the aid workers have to or the case managers have to go in and make a case for why this should be covered and really appeal it? So there are probably two categories. And I think you're right across the board. It's all of those things. There's a habit of just denying. You know, their job as insurers is to deny as much as possible. We know this. This isn't a secret. Um, So, for example, I'll use my children. Max needs a wheelchair. He's using a borrowed power wheelchair. One of the features that his physical therapist would like him to have is a standing feature in the wheelchair so that he can maintain bone strength and everything else. It literally stands the person up. He's just received a denial saying that there's no reason to have this standing feature. When we know that it's better for bone health, the physical therapist has ordered it. Many kids have it, but their first reaction is you don't need this extra you know, bells and whistles on this chair. So we'll go through an appeals mm-hmm. process, which is long and arduous. And meanwhile, he doesn't have the piece of equipment he needs. Um, the other denial, and again, I can use us as an example, is for a newly approved drug um, called Exondus 51. It's the first approved drug for, uh, for Duchenne, for a subset of the population, which happens to include my boys. And, and insurance companies don't want to pay for it. So we spent... Uh, since 2016, almost two years actually, um, fighting for MassHealth, Massachusetts Medicaid, to cover this drug for Max. Now, ironically, the drug was approved based on Max's results in the clinical trial. There were only 12 kids. So the drug was approved by the FDA, yet it was so new that that, uh, payers are calling it experimental. So there's a whole education process. These drugs are incredibly expensive. These pieces of equipment are expensive and, and people just don't want to pay for it. So it's educating them. It's fighting. It's making a case for it. And a lot of those things, families just don't have the energy to be doing on their own. Yeah. It's a lot of work when you're just, when you're just trying to get through the day. You have a job. You have children who are very needy. The last thing you need to be doing is fighting for the things that your doctor is saying your kids need to survive. Right. Um, it makes no sense. Yeah. So, you know, this program is definitely a needed program because the case managers can take over and, and really help fi- fight those fights for these families. And are, is the Little Hercules Foundation, are they available to help any family with DMD um, who has those needs or is it depending on, does it depend on where someone lives? No. So it's any, any, person with a Duchenne diagnosis. Right now, they're just working with United States families because, you know, the United States payer system is very different than anywhere outside the U.S., but uh, I can envision them expanding. They're very small right now, but yes, anybody with a diagnosis of Duchenne. Yeah, that's really exciting. Um, I wanted to go back to something you said, uh, you know, in terms of your outreach and advocacy, kind of, um, 
like pushing the understanding that you know boys with DMD are normal um, and that they can make friends and they need friends. How has it been for for your boys just having a disability or being in wheelchairs? Has it been harder for them to make friends? And what have those relationships been like? How to what extent are they friends with other boys with DMD or like having relationships more online? And then how have their interactions been with like classmates throughout their years in, in school? So. I think that the social piece is potentially the worst or hardest, especially as they become teenagers. You know, technically teenage years are when you pull away from your parents, you become independent and you start really just bonding with your peers. For these guys, they become more dependent, they need their parents, they become more fragile. And and quite honestly, it's difficult for them to do the things that these other guys are doing. They're getting driver's licenses, they're going to parties, um, and they're, they're out and about and these guys can't drive on their own. Well, most of them can't. Some do. Some get modifications. But so for us, the boys are very different. But I'll, I'll talk about Austin because I think for Austin, it's been the longest road. Um, he's always had friends in school. Um, people are very committed to Austin once they meet him and they rarely forget him. He is a really neat kid and he's very social and very determined to be treated like a normal person. So he's made a lot of friends. The shift after graduation from high school has been really painful. He no longer has these day-to-day friend interactions. Um, And honestly, the friendships are hard because very quickly he's depending on his friends as caregivers. And we've even made the mistake of hiring friends as caregivers. And we've learned not to do that anymore um, because it really changes dynamics of things. Mm. But, you know, they get burnt out. They start going to parties and not telling him because he's harder to take care of and they don't want the responsibility. Um, So he's had a lot of friends walk out of his life last year um, after college started. But he's also making some new friends, um, you know, where he is. And I'm encouraging him to get out there. But it is harder. Some of the kids' best friends are boys with Duchenne. We see them maybe once a year. Um, at the annual conference. We were just in Arizona for the annual conference. And some of the closest friendships, these guys maintain, you know, Austin's got friends with Duchenne that he's been friends with for 10 years. So um, that is a very close relationship. I imagine also just, I mean, leaving high school, uh, friendships change a lot. And in a community college setting, like there's often not that same sense of community that you have in a high school where it's harder to make new friends too. Yeah, so I think that, Some of the growing pains that Austin has are normal, but I think he has trouble differentiating. Mm -hmm. You know, immediately he thinks my friends aren't including me because I'm disabled. Yeah. So I've worked a lot on that mindset because, you know, honestly, I'm friends with one person I was friends with in high school. And so I try to point out to him that this is a natural thing that happens, but he is such a social kid. He is such an independent kid. I mean, he's 19, and if he could be living alone, he would be. He would have moved out immediately. I mean, most of his friends want to stay with their parents forever. Austin is like, get me out of here. Yeah. <laughs> so, and it's not because I'm horrible either. It's just because he enjoys autonomy. Yeah. He really does. And you you mentioned he's also gotten involved with volunteering and speaking related to DMD, and he's actually doing an internship. I'm not sure if it's one of with one of those organizations you're working with, or or is it with a different one? So his, um, Austin is serving on the board. It's a uh, patient advisory committee board. 
for Parent Project Muscular Dystrophy. That's an organization we've been with since my boys were tiny, although I've never worked with them professionally. But Austin has been on the board for about a year. He also, so, so that's made up of uh, young men with Duchenne. They've got to be uh, over 18. And they work together to pull conference agendas together. They do sessions related to growing up and being a teenager. They help mentor the younger guys. Um, and then he was also, as a, as a side note, uh, asked to participate in um, a committee that works with PPMD. He's actually the only one with Duchenne. I didn't realize he's the only one like under 30 on this board. Um, and they review centers of excellence. So they go um, review hospitals that really want to be Duchenne centers. And they want the name center of excellence that is given to them by Parent Project MD. And so he is, he is charged with reviewing the documents, making sure that hospitals um, have all the right doctors and have all the right um, facilities in order to be a proper Duchenne care center. And then he gives a vote, yes or no. So he's doing some real things. He's also been a speaker uh, for several um, situations. He's spoken to companies on their product launches and things like that. So he's a pretty busy guy in addition to being a normal teenager. He also, um, he had an internship last summer with a local biotech company, Solid Biosciences, and he really enjoyed that. This summer, he chose to stay in school and take some classes, but last summer, he was an intern as well. Yeah, that's really cool. It's nice that he's able to do some things that are professional linked to his personal experience with DMD, so it's hopefully something that you know, gives him also like a leg up uh, in addition to just being like something that he, that's like a challenge for him to overcome. Absolutely. I, I like to see him using his uh, experiences to educate people who are making change. You know, if you can, if you can do that, if you can really talk to clinicians, physicians, drug companies and inspire them to work harder, then you're doing a great job. And he also prides himself in being separate from me. I've asked him to join my company, but he said no. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And tell me, so you have your own company working as a consultant in the rare disease space. How did you find time to start your own company? Um, maybe, as you mentioned, you're, you think of yourself more as the manager for them. I don't know if you're just like very good at delegating. Uh, how did you get started with that? And what is your work like with that company? So sort of I did the work first and then I incorporated and became an LLC because it made sense financially. Um, so I've been doing some consulting for about four years now. Um, it was unpaid work turned paid. Basically, I started putting a dollar amount on the advice I was giving for free um, to drug companies. I mean, our family has a lot of experience in genetic illness. We have a lot of experience in clinical trials. Both boys have been in multiple trials as participants. We have experience in the regulatory system. We've had lots of meetings with the FDA during the approval process for um, the drug that the boys are on. So we, I have a lot of regulatory experience. And so I was at being asked to help design clinical trials, um, talk about, talk companies through the FDA advisory committee process, talk about recruitment, spread the word about um, studies. And so I started saying, well, this is like a full-time job. And then I started looking around 
thinking, can I turn this into work? And at the time I was working for a, a small nonprofit, but I was not making the money I needed to. And I didn't have the flexibility I needed to. I'm a single mother and I don't receive support from anybody else. So it really became a necessity to go out and market myself. I was being asked to do a lot of speaking engagements at conferences and at product launches. Austin and I were doing that. And so I started charging for my time and I found out that there's a huge market for people with actual unique experience in this field. Mm -hmm. And so although I don't have a medical background, I have a personal background that happens to translate into some really important information that they needed. Yeah. So your clients at this point, are they all uh, drug companies or mostly drug companies? So I work for um, a few drug companies. I also work for a third party um, that is uh, in expanded access. So it's called early access care. Um, so I've been working with the ALS community on an expanded access program for their patients. So that's that's a company working for a company. I don't have a direct responsibility to the biotech company, but I've been commissioned as a consultant for this third party. I also do some work for nonprofits, both paid at a discounted rate or, um, or free. I, I donate my time when I can as well. Yeah, that's really neat. Back in 2012, your younger son was eligible for a drug trial. And then your older son, Austin, was not eligible for the trial. Do I have that? Do I have that correct? Yes. Okay. That's correct. Yeah. With that drug trial, your younger son, Max, was actually walking. <laughs> and your, your older son, Austin, was still in a wheelchair. So what was that like for you to watch one son be given this, this drug and the other not? So Austin was already in a wheelchair and was 12 when the study started and Max was nine. Um, and so being in a wheelchair uh, eliminated the possibility that he could be in the study because the study was focused on, on walking, six minute walk test in order to decide if the drug was working. So we knew right away that Max was gonna be in it and Austin wasn't. Um, what was hard was when I started noticing that the drug was actually doing something. He had more energy and more st stability, more stamina, and realizing that Austin didn't have access and probably wouldn't have access for a long time. So it was really devastating to know that, that there was an option and, and only one of my kids could get it. I, but I think that it fueled everything that's happened since. You know, I was a homemaker. I was a stay-at-home mom. My husband worked. Um, but I wasn't pleased with how the system worked. And so that's sort of how I got into my current life and career was really reaching out first to the drug company and realizing that um, they had no, there was no avenue for me to tell people that the drug was working and to seek faster approval. And so I started working with, working my way up at the FDA um, to try to talk to them about this drug. And in the end, the company, based on you know the, the motion that we started, um, went to the FDA seeking accelerated approval. And based on our interactions and putting the data in front of them and having them realize the data was good, even though it was only 12 boys and it was a short period of time, we got a drug approval. And um, and now there are hundreds of boys on this drug. So. So I think I was in a unique position. I don't think anybody else in the study would have pushed so hard because their child was already getting the drug. Right. But I think it was because I had one getting it and one not. I was in the perfect position to be just motivated enough to do it. Yeah. So that's a drug that both of your sons are on currently? 
Yeah, so both of them receive weekly infusions of Exondus. The commercial name is Exondus 51. Um, back in the day, it was called Eteplerson. So they're really great at naming things. But yes, we have a nurse that comes to the house every week for their infusion. Okay. So I know gene therapy is something that's like exciting a lot of people in the rare disease community. Is is that how how is Duchenne muscular dystrophy community looking at the possibility of gene therapy and what are the other possibilities out there that, that give you hope that there could be other drugs that could be really beneficial for your sons? So for starters, the next generation, so the boys are on an exon skipping drug, which skips over the mutated part of the gene to, to create a smaller, um, a smaller gene um, that can produce the protein they're missing. So it's not totally effective, but it's effective enough. And the newer generations, which are next now going into trials, are looking even better. So there's the next generation of this type of drug. But gene therapy is sort of the holy grail. It's what we've all been hearing about since diagnosis. You know, I, I, my kids were diagnosed uh, 16 years ago, and we've been hearing about the potential of gene therapy. Well, now we have three little boys that have been dosed with gene therapy who have, remember that CK count that is really high when your muscle is breaking down? Uh -huh. um, these boys have really low CK counts now after one treatment with gene therapy. They also have more dystrophin, which is what they were missing. You know, you base the disease on an absence of dystrophin. So I think it's super exciting. It also makes me a little bit angry um, because we've worked so hard for this, but it's treating little boys right now and it's not treating the older guys. And so my guys got on a drug, but they obviously are on the first generation drug and gene therapy is probably going to be what cures it. Mm -hmm. And is that something, do you think in the future, that drug that the younger boys are on, the gene therapy would be available to your boys or it's really only going to be accessible to, to younger boys? So the companies are trying, the pro there are three companies working on gene therapy for Duchenne, Pfizer, um, solid biosciences and Sarepta. Sarepta is the one treating the three younger boys now. Their first trial is just for younger boys. Sarepta is also the manufacturer of the drug that my boys are on. And then um, solid biosciences is treating, um, was treating older boys, but their first non-ambulant older boy that took the drug had severe side effects and the drug was put on clinical hold. So now when they go back to dosing, they're going to have to dose little kids. And that's because the dose is weight dependent. Hmm. And it seems that the really high doses for the bigger kids might have some side effects and toxicities. So the answer to your question is that it will be a while before you can use this in older guys. Um, I know that the company Sarepta anyway is interested in treating boys that have already been treated with exon skipping mm -hmm. with gene therapy. So that would make all of our guys that were in the original trial candidates for that. So I hold out hope, but I also think that the younger generation is going to look really, really healthy. Yeah. And our boys, you know, my, my guys, my 16 year old is still walking a little bit, um, but primarily uses a wheelchair and his brother stopped walking at 10. So they're not going to walk, walk again They're, you know, and, and these younger boys will probably do amazingly. Yeah. Cause it, cause the drugs are not expected to be able to really reverse the disease just to prevent um, the progression. Is that right? 
so gene therapy might be able to reverse a little bit. We saw a little bit of recovery from Max. Actually, we saw a lot of recovery early on, and then he stabilized for a long time, and then he just progressed slowly. So it's really no telling what the better exon skipping will do or what gene therapy will do. Um, gene therapy is still still a smaller amount of the protein that they need than the, what the normal person has, but treated young enough, it could stave off symptoms for a while. Treated late enough, they might not have enough muscle for it to, to do a whole lot. Right, okay. What do you wish that people knew about Duchenne muscular dystrophy or how do you wish that it was approached differently to make sure that people who have a child with Duchenne muscular dystrophy get the attention that they, that they need that it sounds like you didn't really get uh, when you were in Vermont and uh, Austin was first uh, diagnosed quite late? Well, I think things have changed. First of all, I think people who are getting diagnosed now are given the option of, you know, 14 different studies to enroll their sons in. So mm -hmm. part of it has already changed. Um, but I think more of a social experiment is that I, I would love that people saw these guys as normal contributing members of society. And yes, we want to correct the disease, but no, they're not broken as they are. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that we we are just doing life and and the boys just want to be seen as normal. They don't want to be looked at, stared at, poked at. Um, and, you know, also that when you see a family like ours, you know, that, that we struggle every day and that it's harder, um, to do this and maybe make it a little bit easier, um, on these guys. You know, I have people that complain about, you know, shoveling sidewalks. Well, if you don't shovel your sidewalk, my kid can't get to the store. And yes, that's important. You know, that sort of thing, you know, when you park, don't park in a handicapped spot. Cause I actually need it. If you don't need it, don't park there. Um, so just, it's more functional things. Just really try to try to realize that these, these guys are members of the of society that you live in and you belong to. And, and although we are fighting hard every day for our kids and although we are doing things that nobody should have to do and we're losing community members daily, you know, guys die, but we're also just trying to live life. And so it would be really nice if people that looked at, looked at these guys realized that. Well, this has been great. Thanks so much for speaking with me. Thank you. Thank you very much for talking to me. Appreciate it. If you'd like to share your story, send an email to podcast at greatgenetics.com. If you'd prefer to share a written version of your story, we're creating a dedicated place on our website for this too. Reach out to us at the same address, podcast at greatgenetics.com. If you enjoy listening to patient stories, please take two seconds to rate us on iTunes and consider taking 30 more seconds to leave us a review on iTunes. Those ratings and reviews really do help us to reach more people and to share your stories with a broader audience. You can also easily share any of our episodes through social media. You can find Great Genetics on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute medical advice and is also not a substitute for genetic counseling. Neither Great Genetics nor any of its guests makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Evaluation of an individual's personal and family health history is a crucial part of genetic counseling and any recommendations.